Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'm really pleased that you joined us today because we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation as our very last session of this run of our group learning program. We've been studying for six months in this program from this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, and we're ending this program for this iteration of it today. But don't worry, we're actually going to be restarting it again on Sunday, unofficially. But officially, we'll be restarting this program again on Wednesday, February 3rd. But there is a kind of unadvertised class on Sunday, the 31st of January, which is about the five hindrances to enlightenment. These are the five things that the Buddha taught that will hinder you or stop you or have you not be able to attain enlightenment with these five things present in the mind. So we're going to teach that on Sunday as we get started with the new group learning program because the group learning program is designed to guide you on this path to enlightenment. So it's kind of nice to have this preliminary class that is going to essentially teach you what things are going to stand in your way, what things are going to hinder you. So that's on Sunday, the 31st of January, and that content doesn't exist in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. So that's why we're kind of inserting it in there on Sunday, the 31st of January. Then next Wednesday, a week from today, we'll officially restart the group learning program on that Wednesday at nine o'clock Thai time. And we'll probably do a little bit of meditation that day too, but we're going to essentially kick off the group learning program on that day, then go through a series of three classes each Sunday, and then ultimately arrive to a fifth class where we're going to be sharing the 10 fetters, the four stages of enlightenment, and the seven factors of enlightenment. And that's going to be on Sunday, about five weeks from now. And then from there, we're going to pick up and start with chapter one of this book, which is the common way that we've been teaching the group learning program for the last two iterations of it. It's just starting at chapter one. But considering that we've been teaching this now for an entire year, and there's been two iterations of the group learning program where we've gone through the entire book twice, What I'm doing is inserting five special unique classes to kind of draw out some of the key targeted areas of the path to enlightenment. That class on the five hindrances, three individual classes really targeting the eightfold path, which is the path to enlightenment. And that fifth class, which is really focused on the 10 fetters, because that's what needs to be eliminated in order to attain enlightenment. 
And we're also going to be discussing the four stages, the individual stages of enlightenment, as well as the seven factors of enlightenment. So in a five-week period, we're kind of consolidating and condensing a major portion of the Buddhist teachings. So if you've been in this program for the six-month program, that's great because you're getting a lot of the refined detail of the path to enlightenment. But if you only ever spent five weeks learning the Buddhist teachings and that's all you ever had in this entire life to study, this would be the five weeks to do that on the next preceding five Sundays. So today, because it's the last class of this iteration of the group learning program, we're going to end with breathing mindfulness meditation. But then after breathing mindfulness meditation, I thought a nice way to end this iteration of the group learning program would be to talk about Gautama Buddha's death and talk about some of his last words and some of the last things that he shared as a result of his death because he actually knew that he was going to die three months before he actually died and then he knew when he was actually going to die and he spoke his last words and then he died and if people didn't think that he was the fully perfectly enlightened buddha before he died during his 45 years of teaching they surely would have known at that point if he gave them a three months heads up that he was about to die and then he spoke his last words and lay down and actually died. So in order to have that kind of insight and wisdom into your own death, you would surely have to be enlightened and you would surely have to be a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. So we're going to be discussing the story of his death and I'm going to share with you the content that I have in terms of his last words. And we're gonna get to that after meditation. So once again, thank you for joining. Thank you for making learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings part of your life because this is the very best thing that you can do for yourself, those close to you, and all of humanity. Because by all of us learning and practicing the teachings to train our mind, we're gradually improving the condition of our mind and the condition of our life, causing less and less harm in the world. And by doing this, we all together, but individually, make this world a better and better place. So let's do that with breathing mindfulness meditation. So I'd like to invite you to go ahead and take a position for meditation, which is typically the seated position if you're just starting out, but there's also the lying position, standing position, and walking positions as well. So you take whatever position is comfortable for you, probably not walking while you're attached to a computer or device, but up to you. Most people will probably learn in a class in a seated position, which means you're probably seated on the floor or maybe in a chair. Either way is fine. There's not just one permanent fixed way to position the body in order to train the mind during meditation. That would be permanence, which we know doesn't exist as part of the Buddhist teachings. So if you're sitting on the floor, cross leg, not too tight. And if you're in a chair, just have your feet flat on the floor or crossed at the ankles, up to you, however you'd like to do that. Remember to elongate your spine. That's going to engage the muscles, keep the mind active, attentive, and alert, which is important during meditation because we're actively training the mind during meditation. 
So keeping those muscles engaged, not in a real stressful, forceful way, but just keeping the spine erect where you're not kind of slouching and kind of lackadaisical about it, but you've just got some uprightness to the upper body. Hands and arms, there's lots of options there. Gautama Buddha placed his right hand on top of his left with his thumbs together. And if that's comfortable for you, put that in your lap. And then the other option is putting your palms on your thighs or on your knees. Some people put their palms up. Some people put their arms on the armrest of a chair. Whatever's comfortable for you because it's all about making the the body comfortable but not luxurious. Because if it's luxurious, there's a tendency for the mind to turn off and disengage. Once you're in position with the body and the body's comfortable but not luxurious, just close the eyes. And as you close the eyes, just start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. You just like to establish a nice, steady, consistent breath where there's no forcefulness of the breath. You're not trying to control the breath, but just a nice, natural inhale and exhale through the nose. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. You should fixate the mind on the breath. Now that you've got the breath somewhat established, just fixate the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of the air moving into the nose over the skin. The breath is the present moment. So fixate the mind there. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. I'm gonna start with some chanting just to kind of ease us into meditation. And then I'll be back with some more guidance If you've been learning these chants, feel free to chant along with me. Sanghang Namah 
mí. Napmorhasa bhagavato harahato samma samputasa Napmorhasa bhagavato harahato samma samputasa Napmorhasa bhagavato harahato samma samputasa Viti piso mahakava harahang samma samhuto Vichacharanang samhuno sakhato roka vitu anutero purisa dhamma sati satatava manusanang Bhūto Bhagavati Breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Nice natural breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in. and out. As you're breathing, fixate the mind on the breath. This is the present moment. The mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when it's in the present moment. So we're training the mind to come into the present moment Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. If the mind wanders to the past or to the future, cut it off, let it go. Bring the mind back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. 
out. If there are any thoughts, ideas, or perceptions that come into the mind, let these go. Cut them off. Focus the mind on the breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. As the mind wanders during meditation, you haven't done anything wrong. No need to feel guilty or shameful. You're not failing at meditation. The mind is just trying to show you that it's more powerful, that you can't control it. This is your challenge over time to train the mind so that you can learn to control the mind. The mind is just untrained. That's why there's no need to feel guilty or shameful. Because now you're training the mind to come to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. Keep focus on the breath. Anytime you notice that the mind has wandered, you're going to cut it off, let it go, and bring the mind back to the sound of the breath or the sensation of air entering the nose. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. The mind's going to want to hold on and not let go. It's going to want to even hold on to this voice that's talking to you right now. So I'm going to be quiet so that you can just go inside internally Focus inwardly and train the mind to just be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, with nothing other than the breath. You need nothing. You already have everything you need. Just focus on the breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in 
out. You have nowhere to go, nothing to do. No one needs you right now. Just focus on the breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out.
transition to eventually start talking about Gautama Buddha's death, I would like to just share something with you. Because sometimes when you're meditating, you get these little assistants that help you. And I would like to share that with you because I got some little assistant today in my meditation. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you've been studying Gautama Buddha's teachings for any length of time, then you know the primary problem that he discovered is craving desire attachment. This is how the mind has this outward searching for satisfaction and it wants to hold things very closely. It wants these pleasant feelings and it lurches for these and kind of longs for them with a strong eagerness externally. This is the primary problem. The mind wants things that are agreeable and pleasant. And when it doesn't get that, 
then the mind experiences this disagreeable thing and it pushes it aside. This is the hatred, anger, or ill will. When something is disagreeable, the mind wants to push it to the side. Okay. You might further understand that the mind is doing this through the six sense bases or the six doorways. Those are the five senses, eyes, nose, mouth, ears, physical contact in the mind. The mind wants agreeable forms that it sees, odors that it smells, taste, contact, sounds, and agreeable thoughts. That's what the unenlightened mind wants. It wants this agreeable contact through these six doorways, through these six sense bases. And as long as it gets those, the mind's going to be experiencing pleasant feelings. But that's the problem, is it wants to hold on to those things through these six doorways, these six sense bases, but it's not permanent. So it's lurching and craving through these six doorways, these six sense bases for agreeable, pleasant things. And when it gets something disagreeable, when it gets something that it sees, some form that's disagreeable, it pushes it to the side with anger, hatred, ill will. Or if it smells or tastes or hears or has physical contact or it gets some thought, it pushes it away. This is aversion, right? Well, this is the problem with the unenlightened mind. This outward searching through these six senses, and when it gets it, it's pleasant, the mind's pleasant, and when it doesn't and it's disagreeable, it pushes it away. Well, sometimes when you're meditating, you get these little assistants that come along and help you. And today I got a little assistant. As I was meditating, there was a fly that started coming towards me and I heard it. And then it hit my ear and it tried to go inside the ear. So I heard the sound and then I felt the contact as it tried to go into the ear. But I maintained meditation, fixating the mind on the breath. Then it goes to the top of the head and it starts crawling around the head. Now, your immediate thought might be, ah, that's disagreeable when you're in meditation and you want to kind of swat the fly, right? That's the harm that we cause in the world, the anger, the hatred, the ill will, the aversion, pushing things away. But when you're in meditation, hold the breath if you can. After a while, he left or she left and then eventually came back and came right to the top of my lip and started going inside the nostril and started playing around inside the nostril. And then eventually it left. These can be little assistance for you. Now, if you're training your mind really well and you can control the mind really well, when all of this is happening, you can train the mind to not break from the breath and just stay fixated on the breath. And this will help you in daily life because you'll see that you can utterly control the mind even in these kind of situations in your natural instinct of swatting the fly, which is the harm that we cause through bodily actions. You can train that away. 
Now, maybe the first time this happens, you can't do that. Maybe you can only let the fly crawl around for two or three seconds on your head before you need to, okay, I'm done with that. But that's okay. You got it for two or three seconds. The next time, try to go longer and longer and longer. And maybe where this really starts is not with an insect flying around. Maybe it starts with just a sensation somewhere in the body, on the arm or the shoulder or the leg. And when you feel that sensation arise, train the mind that that's impermanent, not pain, because if it's pain, you need to adjust and change the body position. But if you just feel like a tickling, itching sensation, just know that it's impermanent and focus the mind on the breath. And then over time, you might get another assistant where maybe a piece of dust might come and land somewhere on you or on the body, maybe even on the tip of the nose. And where the initial mind might want to go is to clear that off. But try to train the mind to be unaffected by that physical contact and train the mind that that sensation is impermanent and allow that to soak in. This can be really, really beneficial for your meditation practice. And I call these little meditation assistants. I've even done walking meditation before in the city of Chiang Mai after it's rained. And as I was walking in the city, the overhangs on the sidewalk, as I've done walking meditation, I feel rain kind of hit on the top of the head, completely unexpected. And rather than, oh my goodness, what was that? Just maintain your meditation, fixating the eyes one meter or two meters in front of you, the way that I teach walking meditation. And this can be very beneficial because you're drawing in those limbs. If you remember from the Saturday class where the Buddha talked about the tortoise having the limbs extended, and when the jackal comes to eat the tortoise, the tortoise draws its limbs in and stays protected, unaffected by the jackal. And eventually, the jackal loses interest and departs. And that's when the turtle then starts walking again. Well, these five limbs of the turtle, and then the sixth one, the mind, they represent the six sense bases. So when you're meditating, you can draw these limbs in and be unaffected when a piece of dust lands on you, some water, a fly, or something like this starts messing around. And each time, instead of shooing it off or instead of cleaning the dust off your nose, just allow it to reside there and use it as part of your training to assist in meditation. And if you need to, after five seconds or 10 seconds, kind of brush it off, okay. But next time, try to get a little bit longer. And this can actually help you to train the mind, refine the mind, get more control over the mind. But it also helps to confirm for you that your training is going well. When that fly comes or that dust comes or whatever, and you see that you can maintain your meditation fixating on the breath, then it helps you to confirm, aha, I can control the mind. And then when you're in daily life and something happens, somebody cuts you off in traffic, well, that's easy. If this fly running around on your nose or inside your nose, if you could do that, that traffic cutting you off is nothing. You know, you don't feel any anger or frustration at all. 
or mom or dad or brother or sister or your boss or somebody saying something that's disagreeable and you hear that, that becomes easy if you use these little assistants that I'm talking about. So that's just a little suggestion for you. I don't know if you'll be able to see it if you watch this back on the video because I'm sure all of you had your eyes closed, but I probably will watch it back to see if I can see it because it felt like a very small little insect or something. But I used that as a way to further train the mind and ensure that the mind was able to fixate on the breath the entire time through the meditation. This can be very beneficial for you. Any questions on that before we go further into our talk today? Hi, David. We often seek an environment free of distraction for meditation, but it sounds as though it's oftentimes the distractions that can really teach us. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, oftentimes the unenlightened mind wants this perfect, serene, sterile environment and wants utter quietness. And from my experience, those are actually quite challenging as well because what you're left with is your own thoughts. And if you haven't trained your mind and you've got a lot of harmful thoughts in there, you go into a cave where it's completely quiet. That's what we do here in Thailand. Go into quiet caves. That's the only place to find complete quiet, pretty much. Then you're left with your own thoughts. And if you haven't trained your mind very well, then that can be pretty challenging. But while you're looking for that sterile environment, which isn't going to exist permanently, look for environments where you can test these six senses. The mind's going to be tested all the time. But <clears throat> I've given a story before where I was on a boat one time and there was a monk sitting on top of a engine compartment where the boat was rocking side to side. So he was getting physical contact there. The crowd on the boat was kind of noisy and kind of talking. So he was getting the sound. He was also getting the sound from the engine. He was also getting the vibration of the engine compartment as he was sitting on top of that. So you can put your mind in these various environments to test it. Now, I don't necessarily suggest you do that right away or you do that every single time. But if you've been in your house, in your bedroom, on your favorite cushion, in your favorite bedroom or wherever it is, and that's where you've been meditating for a really long period of time, your mind is most likely attached to it. And you've got to move the mind around into different environments, maybe a different room in your house, maybe outside in your backyard, maybe go to a park, maybe go somewhere else because you need to introduce impermanence into the mind. And when you first start doing this, your meditation won't be as deep because your mind's not used to this impermanence. But that's essentially what you're trying to do is get the mind used to and get it comfortable and get it familiar and get it acclimated to impermanence in any ways that you can, whether it's through the eyes of seeing certain things, the smells, the taste, the hearing and sounds, the physical contact, and then of course the mind, because that's the problem, is the unenlightened mind wants pleasurable things through these six senses, and it wants permanence. So what you've got to do is you've got to train it to understand, to be comfortable and acclimated to impermanence. So the more impermanence you can introduce as you get more and more comfortable in a certain environment, that will be beneficial for the mind. 
have your one or two sessions a day in your normal environment where you're really deeply training the mind, but once a day or once every two or three days, definitely at least once a week minimum, go into another environment and try to meditate there. And if you can do that two, three, four times a week, that would be wonderful. And that's going to train the mind to let go and be comfortable with impermanence. Thanks, David. We have a question from Bip Plop. He would like to ask, in meditation, the brain is empty due to cutting off of thoughts. How can we learn if we cannot memorize during meditation? All right, two things. The mind is not the brain. So the brain isn't empty. The brain's a physical organ in the body. These are two different things. So the brain's not empty. The mind also is not empty either because there's wisdom there, right? So it's not empty. The mind's still got wisdom. So there's wisdom in the mind. It's not empty. The goal is during meditation is not to empty the mind necessarily. It's to focus on the breath and gain control over the mind. So as there's thoughts that come up in the mind during meditation, you're just bringing the mind back to the breath and bringing it back to the breath and bringing it back to the breath and bringing it back to the breath. You're not emptying the mind of all the wisdom that's there. So you're still going to retain that. So don't worry about letting go of all of that stuff. That's still going to be there in the mind. Piplop has a follow-up. He'd like to ask, how can we focus singleness of mind without thought? The way that you do this is through training. You've got to train in meditation, but then you've got to train in daily life too. So meditation is singleness of mind. You're training to focus just on the breath. Because if you can go for these longer and longer meditation sessions where all your mind is doing is focusing on the breath, and it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy on the breath, well, then in daily life, when you're walking around your village or your neighborhood, yeah, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Because when I was just sitting there with the breath and had nothing to do, then the mind was peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So part of it is meditation. That's a big part of it, right? But it's not all of it. So then in daily life, the way you train singleness of mind is you only ever do one thing at a time. The mind can only ever do one thing at a time anyway, but we trick ourselves thinking that we can actually do more than one thing at a time. But in reality, we're just doing one thing and then we're doing another thing really close together and really close together. So there's like nanoseconds or milliseconds where we're watching TV, you're talking on the phone and you're eating a sandwich. You're only ever doing one of those things at a time, but you're rapidly cycling through them so quickly, you think you're doing all three at the same time. But when all that's done, you know you didn't really have a detailed conversation. You didn't understand what the content was you were trying to take in from the TV, and you didn't really digest the sandwich very well either. And this is how you know the mind can't do more than one thing at a time. And there's other ways for me to show you that too. So rather than try to do all those things and have the mind rapidly cycle between these different things, you've trained the mind to do one thing at a time. As the Buddha said, when you're eating, know that you're eating. So don't do anything else. Don't watch TV. Don't be reading a book. Don't be surfing Facebook or the web. Just eat. When you're walking, just walk. When you're talking, just talk. When you're driving, just drive. 
I don't even drive and listen to music anymore. I know that's very common for us, but that's just to occupy the mind because the mind is going to be bored if it just drives. But you've got to train the mind to be fully content and independent, self-sufficient without all of this other stuff. The mind wants that pleasant sound through the ears. It wants that agreeable music while you're driving. But if you can train the mind to just do one thing at a time and be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy all throughout your life, now not only in meditation, but in your daily life, you're only ever doing one thing at a time. And this is how you cultivate singleness of mind and concentration. So if I'm teaching a class right now and say my son walked in, you know, I probably would ignore him, but let's just say I was talking to a student one-on-one then I would pause here in the mind, turn to my son, talk to him, and when that's done, I'm turning back here. But I'm not thinking about the son while I'm here, or while I'm talking to my son, I'm not thinking about the student. I'm only doing one thing at a time, all the time. This is why the meditation is bringing the mind into the present moment, residing in the present moment. But if you get up for meditation and then you go out in the world and you're running around doing one thing after another, after another, after another, flipping your mind rapidly, you're not fully training your mind. You're not creating that permanence in the mind where the mind is singly threaded or singly concentrated or singleness of mind. And what you might think, if you've been convinced that this multitasking is what's going to make you a productive, successful individual. If you've been convinced of that, and that's what you believe, you might think that just doing one thing at a time and focusing on that one thing and only doing it one thing at a time, you might think that you'll be less productive, right? Well, that's not true. This is what we were talking about with Brian asked the question in the previous class recently, where is if you let go of this craving, desire, attachment, this anger, hatred, ill will, this ignorance, delusion, and unknowing of true reality, if you let all this go and you train the mind to be singularly focused and concentrated, well, now you can make really good decisions. You can make really wholesome decisions based on the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings. So rather than racing through your day, making a whole bunch of haphazard decisions where maybe 50% of them or 80% of them turn out fine, but there's this other 50% or 20% that you've made a haphazard decision and now it turns into unwholesome results because it was an unwholesome decision. Whereas if you can be single-threaded and just live in the present moment, allow the mind to reside in the present moment, now you can make singularly-threaded decisions that are based on the wisdom of these teachings and all your other wisdom that you've got. And now you'll ensure that every single decision is wholesome and every single decision leads to wholesome results. And this is how you clean up your gamma. You clean up the gamma by producing only wholesome gamma. The way you clean up unwholesome gamma, all the unwholesome results and all the unwholesome decisions you've made in your past relationships and past situations, the way to clean that up is now through the Eightfold Path only make wholesome decisions through this singleness of mind based on wisdom from the Buddha. And the longer and longer and longer you do that over many months and years, then your family, 
your friends, your children, your coworkers, your boss, every time they're around you, your mind is singularly focused, it's concentrated, you're only making one decision at a time, you're giving them your, your full attention, you're always speaking at the right time, what you say is true, it's gentle, it's beneficial, it's with a mind of loving kindness, it's without blame or blameless. You're not causing harm through your intentions, speech, actions, livelihood. You're cleaning up all your decisions. And now over the course of many months and years, what people learn is, wow, every time Biplab talks, he's so focused. He's so concentrated. He has so many wise things to say. He always gives me his full attention. He's always making good decisions right? And this is where it produces good results for you. So people will be more than interested to spend time with you as friends or family. Bosses, coworkers will really rely on you as a business professional. Your community will rely on you as a community leader because you're speaking in ways that are very helpful and influential to your community. Your children will really value the words that you say and the guidance that you give them. They will listen to you because you're not harming them. And you're also teaching through your conduct, through your own conduct. You're setting an example for the people that are around you. And not that you're forcing them or controlling them or asking them to do the same things you do, but by you functioning that way, you'll notice more and more people around you will gravitate to the type of conduct and mental discipline that you have and now they will start to adopt and assimilate to this same way of being. This is where Max talked one time and he said one of the things that he benefited from in his practice is being around people who've developed their mind to be very calm and very peaceful. And it helps him to see the possibilities of what can be. And this also helps to kind of model behavior. So if you're around people who are into Buddhist teachings, i.e. the Sangha, the community. This is why the Buddha talked about having confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. The more you're around other community members who are practicing these same teachings, you're going to be more likely to adopt those teachings and practice them because you have good role models around you. This is why I've often said that Living in Thailand is one of the best decisions that I made because I see all these people practicing the teachings and you can assimilate and use that as a role model in terms of what you're actually practicing. You can see the generosity. You can see the loving kindness and the compassion. You can see the equanimity and the calmness of mind, right? You can see the right speech being practiced and this will help you to move the mind closer and closer to enlightenment. But if you have good companions, good friends, and good comrades, this is what he's talking about. People who are into good, wholesome teachings because they will be a role model and you guys together will encourage, support, and motivate each other along this path. But conversely, if you have the opposite of that, if you develop friendships and you have people around you that are into drugs and alcohol, and sexual misconduct, and lying, and stealing, killing, being harmful to animals or other beings. If you surround yourself with this, your mind's going to go to that. Your mind's going to be conditioned towards that. 
right? We talk in modern day about surrounding yourself with a circle of good people or good influences or good, wholesome, uh, successful people that you feel like are role models for your life, right? This is why, because it will help you if you're around people who are practicing singleness of mind with concentration and they're looking to not do any harm to others, you will be able to observe that and then all of us together encourage, motivate, and support each other on this path. And that's what a sangha or a community is all about. We have a question from Max. Is it good practice to listen to podcasts or audiobooks whilst walking outside? You know, there's two sides to this. I realized early on that if I was going to be teaching the Buddhist teachings, I needed to get into people's electronic devices. Because when I first started teaching, I just started teaching classes in person, right? But everybody's so into their phones, so into their iPads, their computers and everything. And I was like, ah, I got to get into those because everybody's in those, right? So that's when I started doing the YouTube and the Facebook and the podcast and all of these other things. And that's how I got into kind of get the attention of people. So people are so busy and make themselves so busy these days, they do walk and listen to podcasts or they do exercise and listen to podcasts or drive in a car or what have you. If that's all you've got available to you and that's what you're able to do at this point and that's where your practice is, go for it, right? Because you need to get the teachings in somehow, but you've got to bring this mind and this activity down more and more and more where you can ultimately get to the point where you can just sit and you can listen, right? For me, even like if I'm watching a YouTube video and a student messages me, for example, and ask a question or one of you guys post in Facebook, I don't let the YouTube video continue to play while I'm replying back to your messages or teaching in a post. I'm going to pause that video and I'm going to go to your comment and I'm going to type out an answer for you. And some people have commented about how clear and concise what I reply tends to be. This is why, because I don't allow the mind to ever do more than one thing at a time. It's only ever doing one thing at a time anyway. But if you set up situation where the YouTube video is playing and I'm trying to reply to a message, well, the mind's going to sit there. You're not going to recognize it, perhaps, but it's going to sit there and it's going to flip back and forth. And this is why you don't have concentration to give a really clear, concise and direct reply to somebody in a certain situation. So you've got to get to the point where ultimately, yeah, you just do one thing at a time. Sit and listen to the podcast. But if you're not there yet, it's okay. So if you need to go for a walk with a podcast, go do it. Or if you're in a car or exercising, yeah, go do it. But over time, if you would like to train the singleness of mind more and more and get to higher and higher levels of consciousness, higher and higher degrees of awakening, higher and higher degrees of enlightenment, you've got to get to the point where you're only ever doing one thing at a time. Thanks, David. Those are all the questions we have for now. Okay. So let's go to some things that I kind of prepared to talk about with you guys today. The first thing I would like to share is some words from Gautama Buddha. I'm not 100% sure of when he said this. I think it was 
towards the end of his life, but I'm not 100% sure. Some of the other things I'm going to share from Gautama Buddha were indeed from the end of his life. But this particular Dhamma, I'm not exactly sure. I think it was the end of his life. But I would like to share this with you. Here's what he says. Wander forth, O bhikkhus, for the welfare of the multitude, for the peacefulness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good, welfare, and peacefulness of devas and humans. Teach, O bhikkhus, the Dhamma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing. Reveal the perfectly complete and purified holy life. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are falling away because they do not hear the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. Okay, this is him essentially providing instruction to the bhikkhus to go wander around the world and teach because there's many people in the world who don't have peacefulness, who don't have this peace of mind. So he's saying out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and peacefulness of devas, those are the beings in the heavenly realm, and humans. These are the two realms that can attain enlightenment. So out of compassion for all of these beings, teach, right? Teach, share, share the teachings. The teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So he taught that whenever you give a Dhamma talk, like when I teach these classes, he taught to always teach very good quality teachings at the beginning the middle and the end. Don't kind of make your talk really good at the beginning and then kind of get lazy and slack off and kind of leave your students with, "Eh, well, I'm not quite sure what that was all about. Or, you know, don't start off slacky, you know, get good in the middle and then slack off at the end. He's saying, ensure that you have good quality teachings all the way through your talk. Good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And then he talks about Revealing the perfectly complete and purified holy life. This is revealing this path to enlightenment that purifies the mind. Reveal it to people and let people understand it and reflect on it and practice it. Because there are beings with very little dust in their eyes. If you think about awakening the mind, an unenlightened mind is sleeping. And when you wake up from sleep, you sometimes have dust in your eye, right? We call sleepies, right? In Thailand, we call kita, right? Kita, right? We have these little sleepies in our eyes. Well, what he's saying is there's beings in the world with very little dust in their eyes, meaning they're not sleeping very much. They're pretty far on the path without ever even being exposed to the teachings of the Buddha. There's people out there who don't kill, who don't steal, who don't have sexual misconduct, who don't lie, who don't take substances that cause heedlessness. Because we've all been taught from the time of a child, from our parents and our caregivers, not to do these things because they're part of the natural laws of existence. And people taught these, even Jesus Christ and 
I think Prophet Muhammad and Hinduism and other traditions teach these same things. So there's already people out there doing that. There's already people out there that are generous and sharing. There's already people out there that speak politely, kindly, and friendly. There's already people out there that aren't interested in harming, right? But even with all of that, they might not understand right view. They might not understand that they're causing their own anger, their own frustration, right? They might not understand about mental discipline and some of these other really deep teachings that the Buddha shares. So there's beings out there in the world that their mind is fairly concentrated because they're already practicing certain aspects of the Dhamma without even realizing that's what they're doing. If I can compliment our most of the time moderator, Max, he was one of those people. When I met him, he had very little dust in his eyes. He was already practicing for six years meditation, but he just didn't have all the other teachings to go with it. And some of you guys are probably that way too, right? You have very little dust in your eyes. When you see that the Buddha taught, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit sexual misconduct, don't lie, don't take substances that cause heedlessness, you're like, yeah, right on, Gautama Buddha. And when he talks about don't harm other beings, don't have ill will, you're like, yeah, all right, I like this. This is what I'm into. And then he talks about sharing and being generous and loving and kind, compassionate, sympathetic joy, equanimity. Yeah. I'm on board with that. I'm all about that, right? So there's beings in the world with very little dust in their eyes and with somewhat limited training, they can actually excel and get really far on this path, even into the first, second, third stage of enlightenment pretty quickly. Not that we're trying to do this quickly, but can get there pretty readily with some minimal training, right? And he says... There are those beings who will understand the Dhamma, right? Now, not that I'm looking down on these people, but let's take another group, right? Let's just have compassion and loving kindness for people who are like heroin addicts, right? Or cocaine addicts or people who are really into substances that cause heedlessness. Maybe even they're homeless living on Skid Row or some part of the city which is very dangerous because of what the people are into there. Now, these people don't have very little dust in their eyes. These folks are really deep in the darkness, very deep in the darkness. And they're going to need a lot of help to get out of, into the light. But the Buddha used to focus a lot of his time in places where people were interested and willing to learn the teachings and had very little dust in their eyes because they're more likely to learn and absorb and practice the teachings. Not that he turned away anybody, right? There's even stories of him teaching prostitutes and people like this, even a murderer, right? He even ordained a murderer. So he never turned anybody away, but here he's sharing with people, go wander, share the teachings. And I share this now with you because I would like to share with you, this is what I have been aspiring to do in this program for the last six months, is share these teachings out of compassion for the world, for the goodness, the welfare, the peacefulness of devas and humans. And I've attempted to ensure that each talk that I give has been good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. 
exposing and revealing this complete and purified holy life where you can clear out this dust in the eyes and understand the Dhamma and start practicing it so that you can see the truth. Okay, so this is part of the Buddha's words. And moving to the next thing that I was going to share with you is something that I wrote towards the very end of this book. As I finished up this book and I was thinking about the Buddha's last words and some of the things that he shared, and I was thinking, you know, at some point I will die, of course, or this body will die. And this book and the videos and the podcasts and all the other things that I'm leaving behind students who will be enlightened and start teaching after I die. I started thinking about what are some of the last words that I might share. So I decided to use this last little part of the book to share some kind of last words, so to speak. If somebody had been learning and practicing the Dhamma, that this would be something that they could understand as a way of putting all the teachings together and a, not really a poem because I'm not poetic like Ayana has shared recently, but just kind of in, in a different way of kind of encapsulating all the teachings and kind of a different way of explaining them. So I'd like to just read this out to you guys if you haven't read it yourself. It's titled, From the Darkness into the Light. When we are deep into the darkness of the mind, we can't see a way out. We think everyone else is the problem. We do not realize we have a problem. We do not see the three poisons are affecting the mind and our intentions, our speech, and our actions. We don't see the bad things happening to us as a result of all our intentions, speech, and actions. The natural law of gamma is at work constantly showing us that we are still in the darkness, but without the wisdom of this natural law, we think that we can somehow gain control. We do not know that there is a problem, and thus we do not know there is a way out of the darkness. We think that we are so smart and we can see so clearly. The mind is permeating with poison, the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion, but we don't see it. Our excessive cravings and desires keep us clinging, attaching, and clinging some more. We are bound into the cycle of rebirth through the ten fetters. Our existence becomes trying to satisfy this mountain of endless cravings and desires. We think that we are just living life and everything is normal. We are angry. We are happy. Then we are sad. Then bored, lonely, excited, elated, deeply hurt, searching and looking for what's next in this roller coaster of emotions. We are searching for answers, but may not know where to look as the way of life that explains everything has been affected by impermanence. Thus, everyone calls it a religion when the original teacher described it as a better way of life. The word religion elicits painful feelings for most and thus they turn away. If we are lucky, 
We hear that the world is full of discontentedness. Everything is impermanent and constantly changing, except for Nibbana. The mind becomes interested, and when the teaching is practiced, the mind sees the truth and agrees. Hearing we cause our own discontentedness due to our attachments and constant cravings and desires, the mind looks inward, seeing your last incident of anger. You see your attachments that caused your own discontentedness. Hearing that we can eliminate our discontentedness by eliminating our mental attachments and by training the mind to not cling, the mind inhales a few breaths, but the darkness holds on. The poisons are well-rooted. Hearing that the path to eliminate our discontentedness is to practice the Eightfold Path, the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness, the mind can see the light to peacefulness, to contentedness, to inner fulfillment. But we must have access to the teachings and to teachers. We must study. We must reflect. We must practice so that we can attain the results. A mind free of greed, hatred, and delusion with the elimination of ego and realization of non-self. A steady, peaceful, calm mind in the sea of darkness that is available for all human beings. Nibbana, the enlightened mind, a mental state achievable by all that would create the most peaceful earth ever known to humankind. One, universal love of all beings. Two, do no harm. Three, be a good moral person. It has taken us 2,500 years to realize we've had the answers all along, but impermanence has affected them just like everything else. Now, we refocus. We caught the teachings from the sky. We dust them off. We present them to the world. We start at home with ourself and work our way out. It's going to take a long time. A peaceful world, free of the three poisons is possible. But first, you must realize you have been shot with an arrow full of poison. Are you ready to take it out? Start learning and practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha today. So as I mentioned, this was something that I just put together as I was finishing up the book to just kind of help people see how this world is full of darkness. The world's got so much darkness because of the three poisons. The ten fetters are permeating in the mind of so many human beings throughout the world. But if individually we learn and practice these teachings, realizing that we've been shot with an arrow full of poison, it's just a matter of dedicating your time, effort, energy, and resources to studying and learning and practicing these teachings that you can eliminate this discontentedness. You can get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. It's been 2,500 years since Gautama Buddha's death. There's been an enormous amount of impermanence that has affected his teachings. But now, 
we, meaning society, humanity, has caught these teachings from the sky, the Buddha Vajana people, Bhikkhu Bodhi, Bhikkhu Nanamoli, have done an amazing job at putting these teachings into a form that I could understand and I could practice. And now I'm presenting them to the world so that we can now refocus on creating the most peaceful world that humankind has ever seen. And all of these teachings come down to these three core concepts, these three core teachings, universal love of all beings, do no harm, and be a good moral person. And when you realize that just learning and practicing these teachings, training the mind, you can gradually progress for yourself, for your loved ones around you, and generation after generation, we can be passing these teachings down one generation after another, and we can share them throughout the entire world, creating heaven on earth, where the world becomes a more peaceful, calm, serene, and content place to live because we're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to everybody, to all beings. And I know this sounds like utopia, but we've got to start somewhere. And it's all of us who've decided to start there. I've got at least another 40, 45 years of life as far as I know to share these teachings into the world. I'm just getting started. And as these teachings spread more and more throughout the world, we can create this kind of world. And I'm setting up these teachings in a way that there'll be people after me that can continue to teach and things don't just die with what I'm sharing. So keep learning, keep practicing, keep improving the condition of the mind. If you get to enlightenment this life, it'll be the best, most rewarding thing that you've ever done your entire life. But if you don't for some reason, it's going to benefit you in your future lives and it will help you. So stay focused on the goal. Stay focused. Stay dedicated. Stay consistent. Develop this life practice in a comprehensive way. Don't allow the mind to become complacent. That's dangerous. And once you attain enlightenment, don't allow the mind to convince itself that it's attained enlightenment because that's dangerous too. So just constantly be learning and practicing, evolving, training the mind to acquire more and more wisdom and you'll be moving in the right direction. And then ultimately, the only war worth waging is the war within the mind. Win that war and you've won everything. Because all too often in our world, people are at odds with each other. They're disagreeing and fighting and warring and arguing on an individual level, on a community level, on a country by country level. We're dropping bombs, we're shooting people. We've got famine, we've got disease, we've got people living in unwholesome conditions. We've got drugs, we've got prostitution, we've got murders, we've got rapes, we've got suicide, we've got all these problems in the world. And the Buddhist teachings are what solves all of this. We don't all need to get in a room today and decide that everyone in the world is going to practice these. But one person at a time, if we share and reveal this holy life that the Buddha talked about, 
we can reveal this holy life to ourselves and to others as we go forward in life. And when you win that war with the mind, your own mind, and more and more people win that war with their own mind, we have a more enlightened society. There will be no war in this world because when two leaders disagree with each other, they'll be able to go into a room, sit down and talk and solve their disagreements. I've never seen a bomb solve anything. I've never seen a bullet solve anything. It just keeps the killing going. It just keeps the problems going. We send soldiers off to war. They kill and they are killed. They come home. They have all kinds of health problems. They commit suicide. This isn't the way for us to live in this world. This isn't the way for us to create heaven on earth. It's just more and more destruction. So on a one-on-one -on -one basis, individually, one by one, if we continue to learn and practice these teachings, we can win this war. The war isn't with another person. We don't have any enemies in this world. The only enemies that someone might have is perceived enemies. But when you get rid of your perceptions and you just practice loving kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, and all of these other teachings, we don't have any enemies in this world. All we have is this mind, this discontent mind that's untrained. And if we wage this war internally with the mind and we win and conquer that war, then we've won everything. <laughs> There's nothing else that this world needs. We've got everything right here. We just need more and more people to see that there's no benefit in fighting and arguing and disparaging each other and causing harm. Causing harm to each other, causing harm to other beings like animals, causing harm to our planet. We don't need that. We just need love. That's all we need. We just need love in this world. And the Buddhist teachings are exactly what we need. So now that we come to the end of this program, one year of teaching, it's time for the world to wake up and realize the path that we're on is not leading us anywhere good. It's not leading us anywhere but to more destruction and more darkness. So I just want to thank all of you for choosing to learn and practice the Buddha's teachings. If everyone understood the peacefulness of mind that the Buddhist teachings bring and how much joy, how much love, how much better the world could be through all of us coming together and realizing that we've got to stop doing what we've been doing in the past. We need to create a better world. If we all start to do that one by one, more and more, then we won't have hungry children in the world. We won't have disease. All of this COVID and all these people that have died, that was completely avoidable. If we weren't killing animals in that market in China, I don't blame the Chinese people. I don't blame anyone. This is a human thing that we've all been doing. We're unaware of these teachings. We're ignorant 
of these teachings were unknowing of true reality. We've had hundreds of thousands of people die. We've got millions of people in the world that are harmed by this disease of COVID. But if we weren't killing animals and we weren't eating animals, that market would have never existed. The Buddha gave us the answers that we need to solve all of these problems, whether it's COVID. The vaccine isn't going to solve the problem. The vaccine's not solving the problem. There's more viruses in the animal world that's just waiting to come out into the human world. The vaccine's going to eradicate COVID from the earth eventually. But there's another disease right around the corner. As long as we keep killing animals and we come in close contact with animals, there's just a matter of time before the next disease rolls around. If we still rape and murder, we still use drugs, do the things that we're doing in our communities of harming each other, just talking bad and aggressive to each other, we're killing each other slowly, one by one. And it's not until we all win this war individually that together as a society we will have won. So I share these teachings into the world so that we can all win. We can all win because once you realize that the mind is utterly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and there's nothing that can shake that up, then you've got all the answers and you're done and you know you're never coming back to this world again. But at that point, for me, I felt like I need to share these teachings and reveal this completely pure, holy life that the Buddha shared. And I hope that you've enjoyed this program. I hope that you've gotten something beneficial out of it. I hope that you'll continue to learn and practice the teachings because, as I mentioned, we're going to be starting right back again on Sunday and continuing to share the teachings. But don't ever give up. Don't ever, ever, ever give up on continuing to learn and practice these teachings. Don't pursue enlightenment with craving, desire, attachment, but just gradually, consistently, in a comprehensive way, gradually progress towards this mental state. Because once you win the war, you've won everything. So I'd like to pause here and see if you guys have any questions on the things that I've shared so far. And then we'll go into talking about Gautama Buddha's death. We have no more questions at this time, but I would like to thank you for that inspiring message and for all that you've done in this course and sharing the teachings. You're welcome. Thank you, James. So let's talk about Gautama Buddha's death. So as he was nearing close to his death, he knew three months before he was going to die, he knew he was going to die and he started to share. And we've actually got what his actual words were. I didn't share them today, but they're in the Pali Canon in these books that we're studying on Saturdays. And he explains to his disciples that he's going to die in three months. And there were a bunch of disciples who came really close to him and they were crying and they were discontent. They were very upset 
with the fact that he was going to die. And they actually started complaining to him because there was one guy in the back of the room that was in the corner meditating. And they started complaining to the Buddha and sharing about how this person must not love the Buddha and doesn't care about the Buddha because he's over there meditating. And look at us, we're like crying, we're upset, we're so you know miserable that you're going to die. And the Buddha admonished them. And he said, actually, it's not him that I need to talk to. He's doing exactly what I taught. It's you guys that are so discontent with the fact that I'm dying that are the ones that need to learn. He's practicing the teachings. You guys are still discontent. You're not comfortable with impermanence, essentially, is what he was saying. Right, Because everyone should have known he was going to die at some point if they understood impermanence. But there were people who were really far enlightened by the time he died. And there were people who weren't. And those people who weren't were very discontent with his death, his pending death that was about to come. And people were so discontent, he shared these words here as a way of kind of helping them gain some stability of mind because they wanted him to stay. There were people that were craving permanence. And he essentially says, you know, why do you need this foul, repulsive body to be here with you? I've already shared the teachings for 45 years. You've got the teachings. You don't need this repulsive body to stay here. And then he shares this famous quote where he says, one who sees me sees the teachings and one who sees the teachings sees me. So what this means is one who sees me sees the teachings is that if you see him during his lifetime, he was a living, walking, breathing example of his teachings. He didn't teach loving kindness and practice hate. Right? He didn't teach sympathetic joy and practice jealousy. He didn't teach right speech and he spoke with wrong speech. One who sees me sees the teachings. So he's practicing what he preaches. And then one who sees the teachings sees me. So if you understand Gautama Buddha's teachings and you understand them deeply, you should be able to look around you and see him everywhere. Every time you see impermanence, that's like seeing the Buddha. Every time you see somebody practice generosity and sharing, that's like seeing the Buddha. Whenever you see loving kindness, that's like seeing the Buddha. All of these teachings, when you see someone being kind and polite and speaking polite, kind speech, that's like seeing the Buddha because you're seeing the teachings. When you see somebody become discontent, because they're so attached to something and they want something so badly, or you become discontent. There, one who sees the teachings sees me. You should see him right away. Ah, my mind's discontent. I'm craving permanence. Ah, right? So, one who sees me sees the teachings. Live by this. If you're going to learn and study and practice these teachings, be sure you're practicing the teachings. And I live by this. 
if I'm going to be sharing these teachings into the world, I should be the deepest practitioner that I know of. My goal is to always deepen my practice more and more and more. And if you see the teachings around you and you see impermanence and you see discontentedness and non-self and the Four Noble Truths and the Ifo Path, the Five Precepts, and you see these things, you see the natural law of gamma, then you see the teachings. You see me, meaning Gautama Buddha. Okay? So he shared this kind of like as he was preparing everyone for his death, <clears throat> that they don't need his body. They don't need this repulsive body because if they know the teachings, they will see him everywhere around them. And then he goes into his final last words, his kind of famous last words. He says, Ananda, which is his closest student, it may be that you will think the teacher's instructions have ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this, Ananda, for what I have taught and explained to you as Dhamma and discipline will at my passing be your teacher. Now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are a nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. And then he died, right? So even his last breath, his last sentence, he was teaching all the way to the end. He was teaching impermanence all the way to the end. His last sentence. Now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. That's impermanence. Strive on untiringly, meaning practice the enlightenment factor of energy. Don't get tired. Never give up. Strive on. Keep learning. Keep practicing. Keep moving closer and closer to enlightenment. You might think once he dies that now the instructions have ceased. You have no teacher. But these teachings that he's leaving allow those to be your teacher. So that's what I've done is all of these teachings of the Buddha. I've allowed them to be my teacher. Those words of the Buddha that we're studying, those are his words. Those are our teacher. He was the master teacher of Gautama Buddha. He lived. He attained enlightenment. He taught for 45 years. Countless people got enlightened. He died left the teachings in a way that others could continue to get enlightened and he's never coming back because he escaped the cycle of rebirth. The more you learn and practice his teachings, it will become clearer and clearer and clearer to you that this man was in fact a Buddha because he discovered these teachings on his own without the help of any teacher. During his lifetime, he taught countless people and they attained enlightenment. And after his death, countless people have attained enlightenment from his teachings. And there's people today who've attained enlightenment 2,500 years after the death of this Buddha. So for sure, he was a Buddha, right? So strive on untiringly. Keep learning, keep practicing. Don't ever give up. So I would like to just end with that. 
If you have any questions about these last words of the Buddha or anything about your practice as we bring this particular iteration of the group learning program to a close, feel free to type your question into the comment section of Facebook or YouTube or Zoom and James will ask those questions or you can raise your hand electronically in order to get help directly and ask your question or any follow-up questions directly. Would you say, David, that as we develop right view that all that happens to us and life itself essentially becomes a teacher for us? If you look at it that way, yes, it certainly can. Once you establish right view and you realize that you're causing your own discontent feelings, then you can really go internal in any situation that happens, whether it's your discontentedness, someone else's discontentedness, something bad happens in your life and something comes back to you where you realize you made a, an unwholesome decision, you can sit down and reflect on that and you can learn from it. And if you use these lessons, they can really help you. But even with the teachings being your teacher, you still need a teacher to understand them. So that's why if you've reflected, if you've thought about some of the things you're encountering on a day-to-day -day basis and you need help, that's where you reach out to your teacher and you get help through personal guidance. And you can let me know the kind of things that you're encountering not just in your meditation practice, not just in your reading a book, or you can't understand a certain aspect of the Buddhist teachings, but you can share with me, hey, I was just in the car park lifting weights and this man was coming in trying to catch a cat and this is what was going on in my mind. And I'm just curious, how do you think I handled this situation when I talked to this person? You know, in, or, you know, I had this situation with my mom or my dad or my kids or at work. You know, this is what transpired and this is kind of what was on my mind. How do you feel that I can maybe improve that? Sometimes when you have a teacher-student relationship, the way we're taught in the Western world is we got to look perfect in front of our teacher, right? <laughs> like, I got to look so perfect in front of the teacher. Don't do that, Right? Don't do that. Tell me all the things that you're struggling with. Tell me all the deep, dark, unwholesome thoughts that you're having, right? Tell me the challenges that you're having. Let's work on that and improve that. Because if when you're around the teacher, you're always on your best behavior and you never tell your teacher any of the bad stuff, then how can you get help with that? So don't take on the role of just always talking about all the good stuff. The way to make all these lessons beneficial and helpful for you is to talk about the challenges that you're facing, right? Anybody can sit around and talk about all the good stuff, but talk about the challenges and the difficulties and the problems you're encountering with your life partner and your children, and people at work, and get help on that stuff. That's where the real work is. That's where the real progress is. And that also helps you to let go of the ego as well and not try to look so perfect in front of everyone all the time, right? So yeah, you can create and learn and create lessons in just about every aspect of life. Thanks, David. We have a question from Iona. Teacher, can you please explain the circumstances around Gautama Buddha's death? I think there are a lot of misunderstandings around this subject. Thank you. Yes, there is. Thanks for asking that question, Iona. The, way that he died is from old age. 
Uh, he just laid his head down and died. Uh, there's stories out there that somebody was going to have a poisonous food or sandwich and he noticed that there's this poison and he ate the sandwich instead and uh, because he didn't want this person to die from the poison. This is so untrue. That would be committing suicide. If he saw a sandwich that had poison in it, he would just pick it up and throw it away. Why would he eat it and kill himself, right? So I don't know what stories you've heard, Iona, but that's one of the ones that I hear people say, like, why did the Buddha kill himself and eat that poisonous sandwich? That's because he didn't. He didn't do that. He actually just got old and his body decayed and he spoke his last words and then he laid down and he died. And he knew he was he was going to die at that moment. And he knew three months before. Amazing, right? So it's not true that he ate a poisonous sandwich or whatever other stories you might have heard. The story that I'm sharing with you, I know to be true. Max would like to know, do we have a responsibility to try and improve the world or is it only our own minds? You only have a responsibility to improve the condition of your own mind. That's it. Is doing that is improving the world. Because in the unenlightened mind, when you've got all this craving anger and ignorance on knowing of true reality, this ego and this self, you're putting harm into the world. You're speaking harshly to people. You're getting angry. You're yelling. You're becoming hostile. You're talking in ways that are harmful to people, even with their ego or arrogance or what have you. And by you just focusing on your own mind and just that's all you've got to do. That's the only responsibility that you have in the world. That's actually liberating right there by itself. Now, of course, us parents, we also need to teach our children and stuff like that. But in terms of our own practice, there's no obligation in this path that as you're learning it or once you learn it, you need to run off and convince a bunch of people to do it. That's not what this path is about at all. And that's also one of the reasons why there's not as many Buddhist practitioners in the world. There's about 500 million people who identify as Buddhist practitioners because there's no obligation on our shoulders to go out and propagate the teachings in the world. So this is why what you see me do is I have this Facebook group. I send out posts. I let people know what I'm teaching. I let people know about the classes. But there's not this pressure to run off and go convince a bunch of people to learn and practice because you can't force someone to attain enlightenment. There's nothing in these teachings that are based on belief and you can't force somebody to attain enlightenment because they have to make a million and one decisions. They have to meditate each day, two, three times a day. They have to pick up the book. They have to listen to talks. They have to consult with the teacher, get personal guidance with the teacher. They have to do so many things, so many decisions to move these teachings into the mind, train the mind and eliminate these unwholesome qualities. So there's no way at all to force anybody to attain enlightenment. So why even try? If somebody's interested and they notice like, wow, you've been practicing those Buddhist teachings for like six months or a year now, you your mind's so much calmer than in the past. Yeah, you should give it a try. 
<laughs> you know, there's no requirement for you to, yeah, that's right. You've got to do this and you've got to do this or you're going to get reborn and you're going to go to hell and you're going to get this and you're going to get that, right? That's just scaring them. That's just putting fear and guilt into them and shame. We don't, we're not interested in doing that. What we're interested in doing is helping people eliminate these discontent feelings of guilt and shame and fear and all these other things. So the last thing you're interested in doing is kind of shaming somebody or fearing them into learning and practicing the teachings. That's why you'll never see Gautama Buddha ever use fear in any of his teachings. He never does. So it's more like dropping popcorn, right? It's more like dropping popcorn and seeing who likes popcorn and who wants to follow the trail. So the Facebook group for me is some popcorn sending out posts to all the different Facebook groups around Facebook. That's the popcorn, right? Uh, sending out emails. That's the popcorn. It's just like, hey, here's a class. I'm teaching this class. You can learn how to attain this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. You're welcome to come. You're invited, right? You're welcome to join. And if people join, great. And if they don't, then that's fine too. Because it needs to be free will choice to step forward and learn and practice the teachings. But you're not obligated to push these teachings out into the world. Instead, it's like putting out a bowl of water and then whoever would like to drink can just come drink. Manal has a question. Teacher David, were undeclared teachings meant to ever be revealed? I understand these are mostly unbeneficial in the path towards Nirvana. But do they have significance much later in someone's path? No, there's nothing about the undeclared teachings that is going to help you on the path to enlightenment. And that's why the Buddha left them as undeclared. One of the teachings that you've either seen or you will see is the Buddha talks where one time he was walking through a forest with a, a group of monks and he reaches down and he picks up some leaves in his hand and he says, monks, what is more, all the leaves overhead or the leaves that are in my hand? And they said, well, of course, all those leaves above your head are much more than those few little leaves that you've gathered up in your hand. And he said, so too is the wisdom that I've acquired through this self-awakening to enlightenment. The wisdom that I've acquired is represented by all the leaves and all the trees overhead. The wisdom that I'm going to teach you and the teachings that I'm going to share with you is represented by the few leaves that are gathered up in my hand. Okay, because all that's needed for you to awaken to enlightenment is those few little leaves. And these few little leaves, it's quite a lot of teachings, right? It's 45 volumes of books. Not that you have to learn everything, but those few little leaves is what's going to awaken the mind. And once you get to that enlightened mental state, that's why I share you should never consider yourself as enlightened because these few little leaves get you to arahant and get you to the mind being awakened and enlightened. But from there, if you never believe that you're enlightened, never convince yourself you're enlightened, then you will just keep going and going and the mind will keep ascending and you will gain more and more wisdom because now you can see more of the forest. You're never gonna have as much wisdom as Gautama Buddha, never. You'll never, never, never get to that point. So you'll never see the entire forest, at least in this life or any human existence. 
but all you need is these few little leaves. So the Buddha gave us the perfect recipe of how to awaken the mind in these few little leaves. And he left out these undeclared teachings for a reason, because the undeclared teachings don't lead to enlightenment and those things aren't needed. And if you did know the answer to those things, it might actually kind of complicate the awakening to enlightenment. So at no time should your mind crave or desire to know the answer to those undeclared teachings. Now, some of those undeclared teachings are based on what happens to you once you attain enlightenment and you die. Because if you remember, the last four parts of his undeclared teachings are essentially what happens to you once you attain enlightenment and die. He didn't declare that. And I have different reasons why I think he didn't. You'll discover that once you attain enlightenment and you die, that's when you'll discover that. But while you're alive, you won't ever discover that. And you've got to get to the point where these undeclared teachings don't matter to you and you have no desire, no longing, no aspiration to attempt to know those undeclared teachings. And they're something, even if you do come to understand them through awakening, you shouldn't expose them to anybody because it can hinder their awakening. So leave those undeclared teachings as undeclared teachings. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions we have for today. Okay. Well, I would like to just thank all of you for all of your time, effort, energy, and resources that you've committed to learning and practicing the teachings along this path, whether you've been learning on this program for a couple of months or the entire six months, or even if you've done this program twice over the last one year. I really, really have deep respect, deep gratitude, and deep admiration for anybody who would choose to learn and practice these teachings because it's the very best thing you could do for yourself, those close to you, and all of humanity. I want to give an extra special gratitude and appreciation to Max and James for their efforts in moderating over the past six months and year, because without them, this class and this program doesn't really function the same way as it has been over the last six months to a year. The moderator role is very critical because by a good moderator being able to look at all the different platforms and take in the questions and ensure those get fed in piece by piece. It allows me to focus on teaching. And by the moderator showing the slides in Zoom, it allows all the Zoom participants to see what it is that I'm talking about because I'm here doing the same thing, the same slides for the live stream. So I wanna give an extra special thank you and gratitude and appreciation for James and Max for all their efforts in moderating over the last six months to a year. I would also like to thank anybody and everybody who's ever offered any time, effort, energy, or resources by way of donation and helping to shape this program and allow the program to continue. So I know like Amina, she's in Italy. She's helped tremendously with proofreading this book Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. She did that at the beginning of last year 
and slowly helped me to refine that. There's been people like Manal and Alan and others who've made some very generous offerings over the course of the last year. There's people who don't even attend these programs like Olga and others, Rhonda. There's just too many people to really name of all the generous donations of time, effort, energy, and resources, whether it's books or money or financial support. All of these things that you guys are offering and sharing are what's helping to make this program possible because without the moderators, without the uh, generous offerings, without the support that is coming in to help me pay for Zoom, to help me pay for the various resources that I need in order to sustain this program, we wouldn't be able to support this. So all of us together, through our time, effort, and energy to learn and practice these teachings are bringing these good, wholesome teachings into the world. But there's also a certain amount of financial support that has been provided over the year that has afforded us the opportunity to purchase the technology and have the podcast and the videos and all the different things that we do. So I just want to really thank all of you for your unwavering support, your kindness, your generosity, your loving kindness, your compassion, all of these things coming together, all of us as a community to share with each other. And I'm going to continue to share. I'm going to always be sharing and finding a way to do that. But without you also sharing to reciprocate this gamma, then it doesn't work because I wouldn't be able to pay for food or clothing or the things that I need here in order to continue this program. So every month I always post the people that are donating time, effort, energy, and resources. I also show a video at the end of each one of these live streams that thanks the contributors for donating resources to continue this program. But I wanted to also take this moment here at the end of the program to thank all of you for practicing the teachings, for the moderators, for all the generous time, effort, and energy to allow this program to continue as it has. And because of that support that we've been getting, we're able to continue. So on Saturday, we're going to be in this book, Sotapanna, the last chapters from chapter 28 to 53. We're going to be studying the Buddha's words. Then on Sunday, we're going to be studying the five hindrances to enlightenment, what things would stop you or hinder you from attaining enlightenment. And then on Wednesday next week, it's our official start of the next iteration of the group learning program, where I will start with kind of an introduction and kind of getting everybody up and running on what the group learning program is all about. And if we have time, we'll probably do some meditation as well. And then from there forward, we'll just continue on the schedule that has been shared online with each week on Sunday at nine o'clock Thai time, having a full out talk with questions and answers. And then on Wednesdays, we're gonna do breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation and chanting and a student discussion in order to get any help that you might need. And then of course on Saturday, we will still be teaching the Pali Canon and English program. And then all through the week, 
I'm helping students, whether you're sending me a private message, you're posting something in Facebook, you're scheduling a online discussion where we can have a private discussion. I also go to the temple here in Chiang Mai and I teach a class on Thursday mornings over there. So I'm always sharing these teachings each and every day, no matter where I am and what I'm doing. So don't feel like you're ever bothering me to send me a question or schedule an appointment to meet. I'm always willing to help you in all ways that I can because I'm interested in seeing as many people as possible attain this mental state of enlightenment. And as you do, your mind will just become more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and you'll never experience any discontentedness whatsoever. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So thank you all for all of your generosity and everything that you've done in order to allow this program to come together in the way that it has. And I very much look forward to continuing on Saturday, Sunday, and Wednesday as you continue to walk the path with the Buddha. Until next time, have a very lovely and wonderful day. Remember to treat everyone polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.